This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. To lead a healthy life, you need sound advice, especially when it comes to your actual physical self or your financial self. But when brokers make money on every single investment in your financial life, how can you believe that you're actually getting a full picture? There is a way now. Get a free investment checkup from Personal Capital. Just like a good doctor, Personal Capital is going to give you a second opinion and the right prescription for your retirement. Personal Capital, they use sophisticated technology to take a pulse of your finances. Now, Personal Capital's app is completely free. You can use it on your own or you could you know, work with a professional advisor. But you're going to get honest, conflict-free advice on fees, on performance, and how you can invest for the um, retirement in the future. Visit personalcapital.com slash the blaze. Sign up for your free portfolio checkup. Get a second opinion, not a sales agenda. Personalcapital.com forward slash the blaze. Do it now for a prescription for a healthier financial life. Will Kane S.E. Cup R. Kane and Cup only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. We are back. We're not canceled yet. Yeah, we were, it, it feels like forever. One of us or both of us was gone. For a couple weeks, there was either no Will Kane or no Essie Cup. And for at least one week, there was no Kane and Cup. But we're back. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. And we have a fun, big show set for you this Saturday morning. We're going to have to explain to you where exactly it is that we've been. Yeah. Both in different areas of this country. The, the, the audience deserves an answer. They do. Um, yeah, we're going to get into a lot of stuff today. We've got some some good guests, some good conversations. You know what? I, I just want to get out of the way, and this is a public service announcement to to our listeners. Something you should never do, I learned this morning, is take your eye makeup off with mouthwash. It doesn't work. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> And it leaves a very strange cooling sensation on your eyeballs. I'd like to pretend I would never know. You know, why would that? That's not helpful information for me. <laughs> Let me tell you, I woke, I don't know if this is pregnancy brain or whatever. I got in late last night, washed my face, but um, there was still some eye makeup on when I woke up. <clears throat> so I, I used this eye makeup remover. It looks just like mouthwash. It is like light blue liquid. Did not know that. And I put it on a Kleenex, wiped it all over my eyeballs, <laughs> and then said, holy whatever, this really hurts. It burned? Yeah, it burned. It's mouthwash. <laughs> it's alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I wish that wasn't useful information for me, but I can't pretend I don't put makeup on every day. Uh, yeah. Not put makeup on, have makeup put on me, which is vastly different. No, this could save your life. This could save your life. Uh, pregnancy brain. I don't know. Uh, let's talk about the news of the day. And this was, I was, um, Thursday night, I was watching the 60s, this series on CNN, because I was like live chatting. And it's broken into midway by the president. And President Obama comes out and says, got some news. We are uh, going back into Iraq, essentially, for two reasons. One, 40,000 Yazidis, uh, sort of ancient Christian ethnic religious group are stuck on a mountain in Iraq surrounded by ISIS. We're going to give them some humanitarian aid. And two, um, well, the way he put it was we need airstrikes to protect American personnel on the ground. 
And I thought, huh, okay. A lot of things running through my head at this time. Good is number one. Good. Uh, two, I knew it. Uh, we talked months ago about the fact that we were probably going to have to go back into Iraq. And the president has already sent 300 to 500, um, quote, military advisors in. It's promised no boots on the ground. I didn't believe that either. I think we are going to have boots on the ground. If you believe that advisors are, we already do. But I, I think we're actually going to have combat troops in there because this is a disaster. Well, it, it it raises several questions. One, how narrow is this mission? Is it, two, broad enough to accomplish a identifiable and worthy goal? Three, where does it grow then? Yeah. And and I'd say this. Four, is this what the American people want? Now, and and now you, you, you're right you, to put that forth because it, it should be the last concern. I know you I know you believe that. And I actually don't disagree with you that, that, that you have made the point several times. It's the president's job to move forward on foreign policy issues, regardless sometimes of public opinion. And secondly, to move public opinion. Right. Um, but let me just yeah. uh, as, as a as a side <laughs> note, where is the American public opinion on this? I would point out, however anecdotal it is, mm-hmm. when CNN Broke into the 60s. Yeah, people were mad. People were mad. Because they wanted to hear more about the 60s. I gotta hear about the president talking about Iraq again? (laughs) Less about Iraq. Can't I hear about a 50-year-old story? Yeah, a 50-year-old story that many of them lived through. They were there. Tell me again about the thing that happened in my own life. What is it, Um, CNN I'm watching? (laughs) What, news? Yeah, no, that that is an interesting point. But I also thought this feels like a red herring. I felt like the president knew months ago... Um, that we were going to have to go back into Iraq and because of public opinion and because he is the anti-Bush and because all he thinks about is not being Bush when it comes to foreign policy, he knew he couldn't immediately send troops into Iraq. So he was waiting for an opportunity. And this um, Yazidi humanitarian crisis, I think, gave him the excuse to move. Um, You know, weirdly, he said in the past, genocide would not be a reason to go back into Iraq. So he seems to have changed his calculus. But before we continue to 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 uh, to analyze this ourselves, let's let's bring in a caller that we have. We have Congressman Adam Kinzinger, uh, who's a a friend and and knows obviously a lot about this, having served himself. Um, Congressman, I, I saw some comments that you made. And basically, it sounded like you were saying this is good, but not anywhere near enough in terms of action from the president. Yeah, and and how are you, by the way? Good. This is, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. So here's the thing: we have this, you know, tragedy on the mountain, which is a tragedy. And I do look, I do commend the president for finally doing something. And we have, you know, the Kurdish territory that's under siege, and I commend the president for talking about the need to defend the Kurds. The problem is. We're going to spiral from many crisis to many crises, and trust me, these are many crises compared to the overall what's going on in Iraq. If we don't have the overall strategy of crushing and defeating ISIS, they're not going to stop putting people on mountains mm-hmm. and putting sieges around towns and attacking territory and cutting heads off until they're dead and defeated. And that has got to be the strategy of the United States. I know that the president is, you know, is is so scared of getting back in Iraq. I know it's not what he wants to do. Um, but look, you can't wish yourself into a different world. You have to live in the world you live in, and evil exists, and it is on the march. Well, and it reminded me, oh, sorry, just one more. He, it reminded me of Syria, because remember, I mean, the right. president basically said nothing on Syria for two years and then finally asked Congress for limited intervention. And his weird justification at this point was, 
We're not going in to topple Bashar al-Assad. That's not our that's not our goal. Well, then what is? Right. And, and, and it seems like these baby steps um, don't accomplish enough. It's the same thing in Iraq. We're not going in to topple, topple ISIS. We're going in to protect American personnel on the ground. What? 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 How are we saving the Yazidi people on the mountain if we're not toppling ISIS? They're still going to be there. You know, and, and I think the other thing, and again, I don't want to take away from the fact that the president made the move to do something, which I think is the right move. It's just got to be much, much, much bigger. Um, but I've never seen, when, when he gave his, his uh, address to the nation, if you will, it wasn't, it wasn't from the Oval Office. It was, you know, going out in the stateroom. And um, I, I can't imagine anybody like a Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush or, frankly, Bill Clinton or George H.W. Bush reminding the American people how war-weary they are all the time, standing in front and saying, look, hey, I know I'm giving a very important primetime address about attacking Iraq, and I know I ran for politics on getting out of Iraq, and I know you're really, really tired, and I'm not going to send in ground troops. I mean, you that is not the kind of, you know, head of state, forceful American speech that says this is an American interest. We have to stop this movement. It is what is reminding the people how tired they are. But one of the things we've noticed over the course of this presidency is the difference between the president's words and his actions is vast. Now, you're both right that the president has described a very narrow mission, that of helping American personnel in Iraq and saving these people on the mountain, a humanitarian mission. But SEU yourself said this is a pretext. It is a mm-hmm. essentially false justification for going back into Iraq, or at least a partially true justification for going back into Iraq. So should we not assume, Congressman, I'll put this to you, that something more will be going on? We will be sending those those bombers over areas much broader than the, the area next to the mountain, that we will be dropping bombs on ISIS all over that country? No, I think you're right. Um, now, I don't know if it's going to get as broad as it needs to, but Beyond just you know what's the president's intention today, I think uh, I think action and, and situation on the ground is going to force us to to act that way. I mean I don't think we have a choice, and I think it's going to be presented to us. I, look, uh, yesterday the uh, the new press secretary I forgot his name was basically saying, look, we have two missions and possibly a third, and the possibly a third he was saying is once there's political reconciliation in Iraq, uh, then there's impetus to protect Iraqi forces as they try to take their land back. Let me remind everybody, by the way, every time the American military gets engaged on the ground, the first thing they do is call for air power. And, you know, we're sitting here saying, gee, the Iraqis, which, you know, they didn't fight on, which we understand that, but they should be able to take back Iraq without any air support. Um, Mm. You know, they've got to have that. They don't have it on their own. So I do think that, you know, there is a a possibility that the president's going to engage once the political situation in Iraq is fixed. He's going to say, look, I told you we need to wait until this was fixed. And I think we're actually pretty close to that happening anyway. So uh, this may be his way to expand the war by saying, I told you so. Congressman, let me ask you this. You uh, you mentioned there's a much bigger problem than simply the humanitarian crisis. I would suggest the problem is also bigger than ISIS. ISIS is only one of the many open wounds in Iraq. It's the biggest and the most immediate. But solving Iraq's long-term problem has much bigger, bigger issues than just ISIS. What would you do? Uh, how how would you vote? We know the the answer from the Bush administration was leave troops in Iraq for possibly decades to to provide stability until they work their problems out, till they can politically get along. I don't know what Obama's is, but what would you do? How do you uh, solve yeah, Iraq long term? I would have left a residual force there, and the, you know this is why we can't make the mistake in Afghanistan. Uh, look, mm-hmm. we've got troops in Kosovo right now. For goodness sakes, that was 
quite a quite a long time ago. We're afraid if we pull the troops out, that place can still fall apart. I just got back from South Korea a few days ago. Guess what? I, I met with American troops there. I mean, so, so make Iraq look like South Korea or Germany or Japan, one of the places that we left in in the 1940s and 50s. Well, yeah. I, look, I don't think we necessarily even needed to say that one, but I, I think there's an idea of. You know, look, you leave a, a force of 10,000 in Iraq or something like that. You have a stabilizing hand in the, in the Iraqi government. And we're seeing what happens uh, when you don't do that. I mean, again, we can wish a different world, but we don't have that world. When we left, you saw Iraq fall apart. You saw al-Maliki say, okay, well, I don't need the United States anymore. I'm going to create a sectarian government here. Uh, but I do want to make the, the, the broader point. A sectarian Iraqi government as bad and flawed as it is, and as much as it's screaming to be fixed, um, is still way better than ISIS. Right. ISIS is evil. And, you know, this, this excuse of saying we can't do anything until Iraq fixes their problem, mm. we threw out the Articles of Confederation 15 years afterwards and rewrote the Constitution. So, uh, you know, it took us a while to get our political situation right as well. Yeah. You know, I think you're absolutely right that the president, uh, the president's rhetoric, you and I agree on this, the president's rhetoric is not... Uh, where it needs to be. He needs to come out, have the courage to say, we are going to take out ISIS. And yeah. however long that takes, I know you're war-weary, but you're right, the way to do that is not to remind people how war-weary they are. Uh, that's like yeah. trying to convince people to take a blimp ride by reminding them of the Hindenburg. Why would you do that? You know, I, I, I read something that Diane Feinstein said, um, uh, Senator Diane Feinstein said, she said, you know, if we don't take take on ISIS now, We'll have to fight a bigger problem in the future. I don't disagree, but wasn't that some of our justification uh, for going into Syria earlier? Yeah. I, I don't understand. When will the lessons be learned by this administration? I mean, will they be learned before it's too late? Well, I think they're learning now. And, you know, I, I, here's the frightening thing. Um, I call, I'm not saying this to play the I told you so game, but I called for airstrikes against ISIS back in January. Yeah. In January. Yeah. And I was on a Sunday morning show and was ridiculed for being a warmonger. Right. Nobody at that point knew what ISIS was. Uh, and I think had the president actually engaged ISIS when they took over Fallujah in January, most people would still not know who ISIS is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you have to do. And every day, this is cancer, right? You, your doctor comes in and says, hey, you have, you have cancer right now. What are you going to do? You have to start chemotherapy and radiation therapy right away, or it's only going to spread till it eventually kills you. And and I want to make one other point about war weariness. Mm -hmm. Um, Why? Why are we war weary? I mean, that's look. As a military guy, I'm a pilot. Let me let me ask you: What is it that makes our country war weary? After World War II, we lost hundreds of thousands of troops. Um, And you know, Truman didn't say, "Hey, guys, America, I know you're war weary." So don't worry, the Soviet Union is now Europe's problem. It would be twice as big as it is today. Yeah. He instead said, this is why it's in America's interest to stay engaged in the world. We lost people in the war on terror, and it's sad, and you know every yeah. life is precious. Uh, but we didn't have a tax increase. It didn't crush our economy. You know, we... We are tired of watching it on television. Right. Yeah, there's, 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 there's a way for the president to lead during this time and, and convince the American people this is what we have to do. Congressman Kinzinger, thanks so much for joining us this morning. You bet, guys. Take care. All right, take care. All right, we'll be back in just a minute. There's, there's a little bit more to say on Iraq. Stay tuned. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. We just got done with a good, long conversation with Congressman Adam Kinzinger over um, President Obama, America's actions in Iraq. Now, Essie, you, both you and, and, and the congressman had strong words of criticism for the president's rhetoric when it comes to Iraq, that he didn't take a strong stand against destroying ISIS, against laying out a broader goal of, in everyone's estimation, taking out the cancer that is ISIS in Iraq. What I would say is this, and I think I was leading to it during the interview, is I think he's probably, I can't say for sure, going to move action in that direction. That you can divert a plane fairly easily from a humanitarian crisis on a mountainside to um, uh, ISIS uh, troops scattered throughout Iraq, start dropping bombs all over ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, I think politically he has the uh, leeway to do that. I think logistically it's realistic. So I don't know why he would need to lay out this strong rhetoric you want to hear. In other words, what would it do? What would it accomplish? Well, a, a couple things. One, I think it's I think it's misleading to suggest that the only reasons we're going into Iraq right now are to save the Yazidis on the mountain. A, because humanitarian supplies being dropped on a mountain are not going to save the Yazidis. It's just not true. Um, and to save American personnel on the ground. That's that's not why we're, we're, we're doing airstrikes right now. And not why, I think you're right, that we'll have a much broader mission. I don't think that's fair um, to our allies, who we will ask for help. I don't think that's fair to the American people. It's not fair to Congress, who will have to defend these actions. So there's just, you're right. I mean, he, he doesn't have to, but there's a fairness issue. And it helps pave the way to make this process a lot easier in the future. A lot easier if he wants to build a coalition the way he did in Libya. Let if he see. wants to get public opinion behind him, which is not impossible. That is not impossible to do. Name me a Democrat who looks back and says, I can't believe that jerk went into Libya. Let me play devil's advocate. It doesn't happen. Let me play devil's advocate and sit in the president's shoes. Here's probably what I imagine the calculus was. Uh, A belief that the American public is war weary, which I, by the way, think he's correct on. True. Um, So therefore draw a very narrow mission. As you go to television on Sunday night and interrupt the 60s, which you realize half the population (laughs) is going to be upset for you interrupting this documentary. (laughs) Draw yourself, that they lived through. <laughs> that saw, draw yourself a very narrow mission. Um, sure. They're not going to honestly carry their way. The only way they begin to care is if you go on national television and say, we're going back to Iraq. We're going to launch a mission of war against ISIS. Then everybody goes, what? Draw a narrow mission and do it anyway. That's what I think he was. You're right. It's fundamentally dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's probably the calculation he made. Don't overstate yeah. it because nobody cares right now. Uh, I, well, that part of what you just said is true. I disagree with but the other part. Don't overstate it. Yes. Not because people don't care. I don't think that's his calculus. I think it's because people care a great deal. And so does he. He cares a great deal about public opinion. He went in to. You're right. They don't. They would care if I said I'm going to war in Iraq. But right. I'm not going to say that. Then I'm going to say I'm, I'm going-, going into Iraq, but I'm not going to say that I'm going into Iraq. And, and that's because of what I said earlier. He has got a Bush complex. He thinks of George W. Bush before making every single foreign policy decision. And before going in anywhere, he reminds and, and soothes the American public, he is not George Bush. This will not be Iraq. This will not be protracted. We're not going to go into Syria and take out a regime. God forbid. It's the same. But, 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 but here's, why, here's why it's problematic. Because on the one hand, you say it's not a matter of... Of if Assad goes, it's when. 
And then you say, we're not going in to take out Assad. No one believes or trusts or understands our position on any of these issues. You might think that doesn't matter now. No, I think that's a fair point. That matters. No, I think who it matters to, why it matters, is because our enemies, our adversaries, yes. don't fundamentally trust our word. And, and neither do our allies, by the way. In other words, our threats. Our, um, promises, our promises, our red lines. That's right. That's right. All right, where have we been? Where have we been for the last couple weeks? That, when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. You might be wondering where we've been the past few weeks. I know Will hosted a show on his own, which I'm sure is very boring. <laughs> and <laughs> I hosted a show on my own, which was amazing. Yawn. <laughs> and then last week we were both gone. Justin uh, Barclay was nice enough to fill in for us. Yeah, I heard that went well. Hope mm-hmm. hope y'all were entertained. Did a great I'm job. sure you were. Um, I feel like we owe people an explanation. You do. Yeah. Yes. There's at least a dozen people out there wondering where we were. There are at least a dozen people (laughs) who are like loyal listeners and they were really worried about us, I think. But then again, let me let me say this. If they were loyal listeners, they probably saw on Twitter exactly where we were. But not me. I don't put that on there. I did tweet once. Oh, okay. It's actually a huge internal debate for me. Like, am I going to share where you are? Yeah. My family time, my private time. Right. It's a honestly, it's a. I, it's like an internal debate. I'm like, sure. And then all of a sudden I slip into vacation mode and I'm like, F it. Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll start. I last week went on vacation. It was a vacation because there was a wedding, a family wedding I had in Jackson, Wyoming. It's a great place to have a wedding if you're, if you're in the market. Beautiful. Um, stunning. I had been before, but not since I was a kid. And it is like tailor made for SE Cup. Um, it's gorgeous. It's big country. Uh, there's hunting and fishing. There's national parks. Uh, there's a lot of meat eating. There's, you know, I almost moved to Jackson. Oh, I I don't, I don't blame you. No, like I drove there. What do you mean? When I graduated law school, quick side story. I said, I need to live somewhere in the mountains. Yes. And I loved Lonesome Dove. And yeah. they drove their cattle drive north from Texas to Montana. Uh-huh. I loaded my dog, uh-huh. my cattle <laughs> drive, and went north. And I thought, if I like Jackson, which I've heard great things about, I'm going to stay. Okay. And I stopped, and I liked it. But I decided to keep pushing that cattle drive north. Oh. <laughs> and I moved to Montana for a year. Yeah, you ended up in Montana, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jackson's, um, it's amazing. And we had an amazing time. We went into Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone. We went into... Grand Teton National Park, saw lots of animals, saw buffalo and, and elk, um, just some spectacular- Moose. I saw you Instagram yeah, a moose. saw a moose in her calf. Um, most dangerous thing in the woods. Well, especially to come uh, upon a, a mom, a cow in her exactly. calf. Exactly. As I'm saying, everybody we tells did. you to watch out for the bears. No, no, no. Moose. Well, yeah. It's, I, I, I because, you know, I hunt, I go to Alaska, I'm, I'm aware of this. And it was weird. We 
my dad, my parents went out there as well for this wedding. My dad was joking the entire time that these national parks, he's, if you've heard about me talk about him, he's a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And he's got these crazy conspiracies. And one is that these national parks put animals right at the gate mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you continue to drive through hoping to see animals. And I mean, he basically thinks they're like chained there or that they're like they're baited. Yeah, Yeah. they're baited to stay there um, so that you feel like you have a good time and a reason to go in. And sure enough, we're driving into the Grand Tetons and there is a moose and her baby with three park rangers sort of surrounding her and waving traffic through so that no one gets hurt. No one gets injured, including the moose and the and the baby. I'm not going to call your dad crazy. No kidding. No kidding. It was it was weird because he had just been talking about it. My mom's like, stop, you're ruining this for me. And then there they were. And then we went into another park and there was a deer just walking across the road. And I'm like, oh, well, he's just going to his dressing room. I've done that. I've been to Yellowstone and like the buffalo walk out and cause a traffic jam for like yeah. 30 minutes as he just my stands dad, in the road. My dad would you. say they're being paid to do so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the coolest thing that happened to me on this vacation Aside from discovering the bunnery, which, by the way, if you live in Jackson or visit Jackson, you must start every morning at the bunnery. It is the best breakfast I have ever had. I did it four days in a row. Hmm. Anyway, the greatest thing that happened to me is I may currently be a state record holder in Wyoming. I went on a fly fishing trip with a guide down the Snake River, mostly for trout, for cutthroat. They have this specific variety of of cutthroat specific to the Snake River. And uh, we caught a bunch of those. But also, there is this other varietal of trout uh, called a a mountain whitefish. And it's super weird looking. Cool fish. Uh, Fights a little like a a brown trout. Um, Thank you for that. Okay. And I caught what is probably the state record. I say probably because my guide told me it was the state record. The guy you're paying to take you fishing? Yeah, totally. Um, and I looked up what the current state record is and it's like five inches and this was 16 inches. So you blew the state record out of the water. You're saying by 11 inches. Literally. Yeah. I don't buy that. Literally go on Twitter. I posted this online. I'm waiting for my trophy from the governor. Let me just get this straight. I am. I'm going to be in the annals of Wyoming history. You tripled the state record. That's how I do it. Will that smells fishy. I leave quite the wake. When I go out into the woods. Yeah. Um, no, it was amazing. I, you know, I, I prefer spin fishing to fly fishing. But to get to get into fly fishing in Wyoming, in the wilderness, off the grid, on the Snake River, catch a donkey fish was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Loved it. So my vacation Top that. was a little different. Yeah. Um, I went to Hawaii with my family. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm going back to Hawaii in three weeks. Okay. And I think Why, did you forget something? You I did not forget something. Uh, I'm approaching middle age. Um, and You're not there yet? No. Eh. And uh, <laughs> there are some things I want to do, like check off the uh, the old did that list. Oh, and, this is so sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the modern day middle age crisis, by the way. Our father's generation bought sports cars. Uh, the Porsches or in the driveway. Or had affairs, yeah. <laughs> uh, our generation is, does like uh, CrossFit, Tough Mudders, and like runs a marathon. That's progress. I think so. Yeah. So I have signed up to do a swim from the island of Lanai to the island of Maui. It's a 10-mile swim, and I'm on a relay of six guys. So we'll Do you each, know them? I know uh, all of them but one. 
Um, so, you know, it's just a connection of a connection. Ends up the sixth guy in the I team. I know what a relay is. Thanks, though. No, no, no. The sixth guy, I don't know. I, he knows a friend who knows a friend. Oh, That's okay. What I'm saying. <laughs> okay. But yes, also, the relay is a, <laughs> a connection. We each yeah. do 30 minute intervals. Um, and it's open ocean. I mean, between the islands, you're talking about massive currents, sharks, sharks. sharks. What's wrong with you? So it's one of those things I just want to say I've done. No, you and could die, dude. Since I'm a kid, I've been uh, looking at the island of Lanai from Maui going, I want to swim over there. So there's actually an official swim on Labor Day called the Maui-Lanai Channel Swim. So we're going to do this. So on this vacation with my family, I trained in the exact waters. So we're in Maui oh looking at Lanai. So I trained. I didn't swim straight out into the ocean. I swam along the beach and uh, did some long swims, learned a lot about open water, learned a lot about currents. Oh, my God. And unfortunately, learned a lot about the sun. So um, my first training swim was in the middle of the day, and I'm like, I'm going to be in the water for like an hour. I mean, swimming three miles, this is going to be an over-an-hour swim. And so I load up on sunscreen. Clearly, my back is going to be facing the sun, you know, three inches under the water, two inches under the water. So I load up, and I have on board shorts, uh, and I'm putting it all over, and... But I'm going to do this swim in a speedo. What? You don't swim three miles in what? board shorts. You swim what? in a speedo. It's the way it works. And I miss the shorts. I miss your shorts. As a visual image now. <laughs> uh, I've been doing this since I was six. This is not an embarrassing concept for me, the concept of wearing a speedo. So, <clears throat> but I didn't want to walk across the beach and through the pool in my speedo. So I'm wearing board shorts before I get in the ocean. Oh, so you do have some, you do have a sense of embarrassment. I do have some sense of social Good. appropriateness. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. But the point I'm making is I put my sunscreen on with the board shorts on, not oh, with no. the Speedo on. <laughs> oh, no. So, so you I, have a real funky tan. So I wish I could call it a tan. <laughs> I took the board shorts off and go for the swim in the Speedo. Essie, I got the meanest, angriest sunburn oh my up here on the top. Like basically yeah. down here. I can visualize where it would be. Top of my... What word can I use on the radio? I don't even know. But buttocks. And then up here, Below high, your buttocks, high on yeah. the thigh, oh bright screaming red. Oh, I bet. About an hour later, I was sitting around. I'm like, God, do I have like swimsuit rash? What's going on? Like, oh my, my God. Hurt? <laughs> and I went to the mirror and I looked at myself. And I'm like, you <laughs> jackass. As a Texan, you should know better, but um, that's amazing. You know what? That's what you get. That's the minimum that you get. For swimming in open waters for an hour and for attempting this island to island through shark infested waters swim. I, will I don't think you're cool. Uh -huh. I don't think you're interesting. I don't think you're heroic. I think you're stupid. Unless I get bit, then you'll think I'm all those things. No! And you'll want to hear the story. No, I don't know why. You know who I feel for? Your wife. Your wife, who must be like, oh my God, going crazy with worry. There's never been a shark attack on this swim so far. They've pulled people from the water. Oh my God! You're giving. You're gonna give me a heart attack. You're gonna give me a heart attack. I'll let everybody know how it goes. Whew. If I make it. Listen. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. We'll all be rooting for you. <laughs> I guess. Um, I'll appropriately apply sunscreen. I probably. I promise you that. Well, it's been a fun summer. If you have a fun vacation story, I'd love to hear it. Uh, try and top. Try and top one of ours. I don't know if you can, unless you caught the state record whitefish on the Snake River in Wyoming. You know, when we come back, we have an amazing amount of honesty coming from the teachers' union. An amazing, Is that what you call it? Yeah, I think it's reflection. It's a revelation that we should know about the teachers' union, and they're willing to tell us when we come back on Cane and Cup. 
This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. We only got a few minutes before the top of the hour, and we want to give you some amazing quotes from the teachers' union that reflects where they stand on Common Core and our children. But first, Mark in Maryland has a vacation story that I understand we simply have to hear. Mark. Good morning, guys. Morning. Uh, uh, about 40 years ago, I was in the Marine Corps, and uh, a bunch of us from down from uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina, met up with some other Marines from cherry point we went down to lank beach and we had us a little drink contest and anyway we all passed out in the sunshine uh-huh. <laughs> anyway uh we were so blistered and so <laughs> burned up from the sun that day uh we were beyond benadryl i mean oh boy. nothing could help us and uh we were all called up on a carpet and they were going to court martial us for willful destruction of government property what was the government uh, property you Yes. <laughs> uh, conduct unbecoming that of a Marine. Sure. And three, uh, disobedience of a lawful order not to uh, fall asleep in sunshine with no shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> ne- needless to say, uh, we all got letters of reprimand and, uh, you know, how it goes. And, but uh, we learned the hard way. You just, uh, you know, you got to make sure you got the proper coverage when you're out there in the sunshine. <laughs> you learned the hard way to seek shade. <laughs> That's a great story, Mark. Thanks, Thanks Mark. That's us. good stuff. Um, I love that. Do we have time for this? Uh... Absolutely. Tell us. So I know you talk a lot about Common Core and education. Well, I came across this story in the New York Daily News. Michael Mulgrew, who is uh, the head of the United Federation of Teachers, Teachers Union, was apparently at a conference in Los Angeles last month, and someone has just released a transcript, essentially, of what he said at that conference. It's amazing. This might be an example of the guy, you always talk about um, how you gain respect for someone if they go full, like, head-on toward crazy. Right. If they really commit, you gain respect. Right. Yes. Um, it sounds like that you might you might end up respecting this guy. I doubt it. Because he goes full crazy. He really commits. Basically, um, he's defending Common Core and is threatening people who would try to roll it back, who would try to take it away. I'll just read a couple of, of really good nuggets. One, if someone takes something from me, I'm going to grab it right back out of their cold, twisted, sick hands and say, it's mine. You don't take what's mine. What's he talking about? Common Core. What's his? Common Core is his. Okay. He owns it. Yeah. He invented it. Right. Okay. Um, How how you ask, is he going to do that? How how would he do that? Well, he says, I'm going to punch you in the face (laughs) (laughs) and push you in the dirt. This is happening outside, apparently. And push you in the dirt. Because this is the teachers. Sounds educated. Because this is the teachers. (laughs) Because science. (laughs) Because this is the teachers. I'm going to punch you in the face and push you in the dirt because this is the teachers. And he owns our children. Something about... He owns our kids. 
Yeah. Can I just say that might be one of the greatest sentences ever uttered in the history of sentences? I'm going to punch you in the face and push you in the dirt because this is the teachers. This is the same guy, by the way, who um, I produced a documentary long long ago called Elise vs. the Mayor. There's a quote in there from him openly admitting this. We are at war with the reformers. Anybody that wants to reform education, whether or not be choice or, for that matter, opposing Common Core, the teachers union is at war. With the reformers. With threat of violence. With threat of violence. I mean, people like to caricature these union head honchos as like gangsters. It it is not a caricature. Look at this guy. You look at Randy Weingartner. You look at uh, the lady in Chicago. Is it Karen Hughes? Oh, right, right. It's not Karen Hughes, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Karen something. Yeah. Um, All you need to know about the teachers union, you can see in a YouTube speech from any one of these people. Holy moly. Holy moly. I mean, this had a, a, a UFT chapter leader saying, listen, when Mulgrew gets up there and does his Hulk Hogan routine and says he's going to punch people for taking away Common Core, it's insulting. Another person said it was scary. People were saying that he shouldn't be around children. That's other teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is teachers. I'm going to punch you in the face because this is teachers. (laughs) I'm going to say that all day. Get ready to hear it. I'm going to say it all day. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about Ebola. Um, Who should be getting the experimental drug to... Help people out who've been infected with Ebola. When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup, second hour. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. You just said during the break, right when we were about to come back, and we're talking about Ebola. We can be funny about Ebola, right? Well, I think we can find a way. Because Ebola. That screams funny. You know, you can find funny anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the teachers union, Michael Mulgrew who said, a line I'm going to repeat. I told you I was going to repeat it all show. I'm going to punch you in the face because this is teachers. That's a quote. I'm going to punch you in the face because this is teachers. Um, It's already spawned some great tweets from our very creative, clever, and yes, funny listeners. Rob Supan says, hey, Ebola, I'm going to punch you in the face because this is doctors. (laughs) Uh, Jack Pasmore says, I'm going to welcome you all back and enjoy your show because this is Saturdays. That's actually grammatically correct, so. <laughs> Guys, keep them coming. I will retweet every single one of those. <laughs> keep them coming. I'm going to punch you in the face because this is teachers. I told you I wanted to talk about Ebola. It's interesting. This Ebola story has spawned, I would say, some unanticipated debates. First, the latest. It's like... The death count on Ebola is up to 932. 1,711 infections in West Africa, 932 deaths across four countries, mostly in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, one case in Nigeria. Now, of course, you know that about a week ago, two American um, um, charity workers and doctors were infected with Ebola. They were flown back to America to receive experimental drugs, treatment for Ebola. This... Scared many. Um, Donald Trump famously tweeted that you kind of have to suffer the consequences for your good deeds and then went on Fox and Friends and backed that up. Listen. 
Sure, these people were providing medical care to desperate villagers, but that doesn't mean they deserve special treatment. Right, Donald? <laughs> they are great people. They're tremendous people, but they have to suffer the consequences. That was Stephen Colbert playing mm -hmm. a clip from mm -hmm. Fox and Friends. Um, you and I were talking about how legitimately scared to be about this whole Ebola concept. We joked earlier in the week. I said, honestly, the whole Ebola story, I think, is driven by the movie Outbreak mm -hmm. and the movie Contagion. In fact, in mm -hmm. Outbreak, the Dustin Hoffman movie from, what, probably ten, more than 10 years ago? Yeah. Um, that was about Ebola, uh -huh. was it not? Uh, but like a, a, a strain that was very similar to Ebola. They didn't call it Ebola. This is what we're processing this story through. And it was terrifying. Uh, well, yes. So it was contagious. Next thing you know, the military was running through towns, taking yes. over, martial law, putting people into quarantine. Yes. I mean, if you've seen any documentary or footage of what happens to Ebola victims, it is like a sci-fi movie. It is terrifying. It's terrifying. This is what we are imagining. Though. But it's real. The but movie. That, uh, don't you think, but don't you think I'm allowed to be a little scared of Ebola? Like, I don't want Ebola. I'm allowed to be scared to get Ebola. Yeah, you're allowed to be scared to get Ebola. And so, <laughs> because because Ebola. And so, so I'm not going to go to the infected areas in Africa. Well, I think that's one. I'm going to submit that that's pragmatic. Good. And I'm going to be a little, I'm going to be a little nervous when we start shipping Ebola patients to the United States. I'm going to be a little nervous. I'm not in nervous. I'm not, I'm not going out and buying Cipro. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, moving into a bunker. But I'm going to be a little nervous, especially considering recent stories about the CDC storing life-threatening diseases in Ziploc baggies like the ones I have in my kitchen. Uh, no, I'm, that's crazy. I'm crazy. No, I mean, look, you and Donald Trump sit on that side of the room. <laughs> I'll sit on this side with the CDC. <laughs> um, I'm with you, Donald. I'm with you, Donald. But like I said, it's Scary. given rise to what I think are some unanticipated and interesting debates. The first is this. Um, this is a quote from a lady who uh, is a professor here in the United States at Colby College. And she suggests how unethical, how, in fact, racist and mm. white privilege dripping uh, soaked is this, uh, this idea that we would fly two Americans back to our country and give them a very rare experimental drug, one which we're already out of, called ZMAP, after administering it to these two patients, it'll take months to restock it, and not and to hold it on the shelves for months while people in Africa are fighting this disease. She says, that what now looks like a miracle cure was only given to the white Americans looks even worse. Why hadn't anyone reached out to try the serum on Ebola patients sooner, mm -hmm. especially if its potential to heal is so promising? Is the world of global public health really so biased towards the privileged that Americans get help while everyone else suffers? We are terrible people. Tell me, what were these doctors doing in Africa? What's that? What were these two doctors doing in Africa? Huh? Do you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure they were helping Africans who have Ebola and Africans with diseases. We are terrible people. How dare we? How dare we try this rare, unavailable experimental, expensive drug on two of our own. How dare we prioritize Americans? How dare we prioritize Americans? The truth is, that is a philosophy underlying much of this criticism, that it's inappropriate or jingoistic or maybe even racist to put Americans on any higher on the priority list yeah. than anyone else. You know, it would be one thing 
if we had spent a lot of time and money and resources um, delivering aid to Africa on a whole host of, of issues from AIDS to famine to STD treatment uh, to education, it'd be one thing if we'd done that. Then maybe we could get away with prioritizing these two these two doctors with this treatment. Um, oh, 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 we did do that. We did do that. We've done that. We've done that. No country has been more generous and benevolent to Africa than the United States over the years and currently. No one. Um, without the United States, Africa would be a far different place. But, you know, we are terrible people. How dare we? Well, okay, let's, 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 let's imagine the, the counterfactual. Let's imagine the reverse. We ship an experimental drug to Africa mm-hmm. to test on patients in that country. Can you imagine yeah. that narrative? Yes, I can. Look at these colonialists yes. using Africa as guinea pigs. Exactly. Experimenting on us with a drug that hasn't even passed phase one clinical trials exactly. of the FDA. They don't even know what it can do. Let's experiment on the African guinea pigs, on the African monkeys. That is exactly the narrative that we would hear. You can't win when people want to see racism everywhere. You can't win. There's nothing you can do. Um, I think what we're doing is right. I don't I don't think it's weird that I'm a little nervous that we brought Ebola into the country. I don't think that's weird. It doesn't make me a racist, clearly. But also, I don't think it makes me a conspiratorialist either. I think I'm okay. I feel okay. You want to leave the doctors in Africa? Being a little nervous about it. What's the point of your nervousness? The, what what would you choose? What would you have had us do? Leave the doctors in Africa? Maybe treat Every them. Every good deed has a consequence. Yeah, maybe treat them treat them in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen yeah. Colbert. In that clip on Stephen Colbert, he did point out, he goes, because that's how it works, right? No good deed should go unpunished. That's why Mother Teresa's tombstone reads, she had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> right. She asked for it. <laughs> right. No, look, I mean, that's the point. That's, to me, the answer to that question is because science. Doesn't science demand you quarantine? You limit the the, the radius of, of the outbreak and the infection. I saw the movie. <laughs> Again, I know, that's my point. I know point. how it works. Why are we putting these these people on planes and shipping them into our country? Let's I don't move, get it. Let's move on. I, I think the point has been made. You made it for me. Thank you. you are have, you calling me a racist? You've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. I know how this works because science. Listen, I'm going to punch you in the face because this is teachers. So I want to share a story um, that I was reading about while I was on vacation. We're on the 100-year anniversary of the advent of World War One, a war that launched in June, essentially. The predicate began in June of 1914. Here we are 100 years later, the year 2014. And world events, if we really took a, an honest analysis of them, you could say it doesn't look that different. It doesn't take much to launch the world into an unfathomable war. Uh, war. What was that word? War, world. world. What? what? World war when we come back <laughs> on Kane and Cup after the break. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. I've got to put World War One on hold. I know I gave you a wonderful tweet tease about World War One and my inability to pronounce the words world and war back to back. But during the break, I turned to SC and I said, what part of you, how much of you wants the apocalypse? What, how much of you wants that world in contagion when the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket? And the only thing that matters is your shotgun and your family. Yeah. And I say 100% of me, like 100% of me wants that for many, many reasons. One, how great it would be to abandon all of your responsibilities. That And that's that's the key because you're not alone. Taxes? I, that part of the movie where Who cares? Like, I don't just want to imagine it. It's it's a little bit like um, I want to feel like what is it like to get punched in the face? Right. I want. Primal. I want to revert. Yes. All this stuff we have to worry about on a daily basis, you're telling me I don't have to worry about that anymore? Exactly. Like grocery shopping, right? And like going to your job every day. I'm taking the shotgun and taking it from the neighbor. Exactly. Why? Because I'm stronger. Right. Like I don't need this credit card. I'm stealing everything on the shelf. Um, Yeah. To be able to abandon all pretense of like this current stupid world that we've constructed for ourselves um, would be a lot of fun. It's like when you're in school and you have a big test coming up and all you're doing is praying for like a fire drill. Right. You're just like, please Please have something happen to get me out of this so that we can just, let's just walk out of here. Let's just all revert. Even if it's something terrible. To our most basic uh, characteristic and instincts. Because yes. we all imagine, I yeah. told you this during the break, we all imagine we're Brad Pitt in uh, World War Z or we're, uh, we are uh, Will Smith in Legend. Yeah. We're the hero. We're the yeah. very competent, strong hero who cares for his family. We're never the sniveling, immoral um, backsliding guy in the movie. The None coward. of us are that. No. None of us are, we're all the hero. Or the guy that gets picked off, you know, in the first in the first 10 minutes. Yeah, that's the other reason I would look forward to this because I think I'd be really good at You're this. You're not going to be able to recreate this, but just tell him what you said during well, the Well, no, break, I think I'd be really good at surviving and figuring out how to get around the various obstacles that would come my way. Again, everyone thinks that about themselves. I said that I would be, because you said, right, like you're the Brad Pitt, and I don't think I'd be the Brad Pitt of this situation. Um, Because I don't have like his muscles and all of that. I think I'd be more like the Jeff Goldblum of the situation <laughs> in Independence Day. And your reaction to this was priceless and really offensive. <laughs> You, you, I wish, I wish there was a camera because the face that Will gave me. First of all, he goes, "Really," <laughs> and the face was like, "That's how you see yourself." And then, as if it was needed, he went on to explain, "You have, you have no, no scientific background, background. no medicinal doctor. doctoral background, but you, you're going to be the one that solves this for humanity." Right. I'm like the Jeff Goldblum in Independence Day, who can see the glitch in the system and take advantage of it. Not because I'm smart on science or math. I'm not. Just because I can I'm barely, good. Just because I'm good. I can barely figure out a tip on my bill at a restaurant. However. You're going to save humanity. I I would be the person who would like see, see, see uh, you know, the, the glitch, the opportunity, the opportunity in you this know, is so revealing about you. I mean, I'm that arrogant. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because when I said you, everyone thinks they're the Brad Pitt. They're what I'm saying is they they believe in their own abilities to protect their family and find the next meal with their shotgun. 
Well, that you, I know I can do. Hand, that I you, know I can hand, do. Yeah. I'm going to save humanity <laughs> with your zero training and expertise. Yeah, I'm that kid. I just, you know, really? Like, that's how you see yourself. It was, I'm really, I'm offended. I do think it's fascinating psychologically why that appeals to us. That, like, we don't just enjoy seeing the escapism or living vicariously through the movie. There's a little bit of us that wants it. Like, we want that. We but want what, that what revelations is, moment. Yes, but what's the mystery to you? We just solved it. Be, to be able to walk away from all of these earthly responsibilities. To walk away from our so TPS mundane. reports. <laughs> our, exactly. Did you get the memo? <gasps> to walk away from all of our mundane earthly responsibilities and just do the thing that we are biologically engineered to do. It's an even playing field, right? Because it doesn't matter if you have a degree. It doesn't matter how much money you had. It doesn't matter how successful you were, how good looking you were. We're all human at the end of the day. And we are all biologically able to defend ourselves, protect our family, go on instinct, go get food. I mean, you, that's the way you think. So there's a little bit you think if, if you woke up tomorrow morning, walked out your front door, the front yard was on fire, there's distant smoke coming up over the horizon, and clearly it has arrived. Yes. There's a little bit you'd go, yes. 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 Of course. And anyone who says differently is not being honest. Because who doesn't want to have to, you know, not go into work in the morning and instead say, okay, where's the nearest food source? And who am I stealing from? Where's my weapon? And who am I stealing from to protect my family? That would be question one, right? Yes. Where's my weapon? Where is my weapon? In my case, Break open the gun safe and get all the weapons. And then where is the nearest food source? Where are we going to stay? Where's the best place to get to? By the way, I have I have in my wallet a list of to-go items in an emergency. Really? The 10 things that I would take, 10 or 12 things that I would take if an emergency happened. This is how good I am. Mm. This is how Jeff Goldbluminium right. I am. I'm prepared for this. I'm prepared for this. The things I would take, I have emergency plans. My husband and I are at work. When something goes down, here's where we meet. Yeah. If you played a game and said to people, here are the main characters in Independence Day. Will Smith, (laughs) Bill Pullman, the great leader who gives the speech that rallies humanity. Well, I'm not that. No, I'm saying if you gave this test to people and you laid out four characters and you asked people to say, which one are you? It would reveal a lot about people. I never even considered that someone would choose for themselves Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) I would really? be Jeff, I'd be Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I would solve this for people. I would be. I would be. But but don't you think I, I think a lot of people would would either say Will Smith or the president, right? Because they see themselves, well, I can I can kick some ass. Right. Right? I can kick an, an alien's ass. Yeah. Right. Or well I could I always had one great speech in me. <laughs> I had I had a great speech. This is our independence day. And, you know, I can I can be the the leader. Um, I know I can't be the leader. I and I know I can't kick alien ass. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. But, but I know I, I can't kick alien ass. I, I can't. That is something I know about myself. Yeah. But I know that I can. I can see the opportunity, like Jeff Goldblum saw the opportunity. And I can say, look, they're all talking to the mothership. If we take out the mothership, we take them all out. Here's how we do it. Well, you know that we're big fans of Seinfeld. We just gave you 10 minutes of nothing. Right there. <laughs> no, but I think 
I think people really can relate to that. No, I think it's fascinating that uh, we we all down deep, a little bit inside, want the end of the world. Private, is this glass bulletproof? No, sir, it is not. <laughs> I promise to come back to my theory that in 1914, from June 28th of 1914 to August of that year, you went from an event in Serbia, an assassination in Serbia, to trench warfare across Europe. How could you go within the span of essentially two months from peace to all-out world war? How could you do that? I promise to return to that. Also, I have often on this program given parenting advice. Yeah, unsolicited. consider myself somewhat of a parenting expert. Really? (laughs) Really? (laughs) I made some freelance parenting calls over the last uh, (laughs) few weeks. I want to run it by you, the audience and USC. See if I made the right call. Let's talk about both World War One and uh, your and, parenting decision because they're related. Parenting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and this is good because I actually have a, I I have some parenting advice. Oh, because I, I'm not a parent yet, but I I still I have some advice. I'm that good. All right, radio with a point. When we come back, <laughs> a little bit on Candy Go. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Kane and Cup returns now. Welcome back to Cannon Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. Well, as I mentioned uh, before the break, this is the 100 year anniversary of uh, the launch of World War I this summer. On June 28th of 1914, the events that led to World War I basically began to unfold. I'm reading uh, this commemorative magazine put out by The Atlantic called World War I How the Great World, How the Great War Made the Modern World. Mm. Tough words. For you. Tough. <laughs> But it, it stood out to me, um, the escalation, how quickly it went. As you know, I'm just going to lay this out for you. And I, I, what I want to ask is um, how instructive or, or in fact, um, predictive can this be for the, the tangle of events going on in the world today? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to stipulate first. In the decades leading up to World War I, starting in the early 1900s, there were a lot of – there's a lot of background, alliances, um, Tensions between the countries that were eventually involved in World War One, France and Germany, yeah. had tensions um, extending from the Franco-Prussian War before that. But the world was at peace in 1914. Mm-hmm. In Ju- on June 28th of 1914, the uh, Austria- Austro-Hungarian um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. Within a month. Austria-Hungary had launched war, declared war on Serbia for this for this assassination. Now, Serbia had an alliance with Russia, and by July 31st, so three days after that, Russia mobilizes to move against Austria-Hungary. On August 1st, Germany declares war against Russia, and things just unfold from there. Um, 
to the point that by September 5th, so we're talking two months later, not only had multiple nations, including England and France, launched war, formally declared war on Germany or Austria-Hungary, and then vice versa, but they've had the first battle, and they've dug the trenches, essentially. The first battle of the Marne was uh, on September 5th, and from September, starting in September, the trenches are dug along the Western Front. That is a mind-blowing breakneck speed of we are not at war, a seemingly isolated event of the Archduke Franz mm-hmm. Ferdinand being assassinated. Two months later, you've not only begun, launched, declared war, you have had a stalemate and had trenches dug. Trenches, the image of just human slaughter for absolutely no advancement of World War One, uh-huh. took place within two months' time. Uh-huh. I mean, I can't, I can't comprehend the speed that that took place. Right. Now, as I said, uh, there was background. There was background of tensions and global alliances from— Yeah, the, the scene <clears throat> was set. The central powers to mm-hmm. the allies. Um, but what I, what I, the lesson I took from that that I think we all should at least be aware of is it doesn't take much. You think that something so— so momentous, momentous and historical would be years in the making. Would be you would see coming down the train right. track. It was years in the making, but yes, that you would see. Yeah, you would see it coming and be able to thwart it because there's time, right? Right. There's time, and therefore, <clears throat> isolated events don't have the weight of history. I think, by logical extension, you would say a vendor in a market in Tunisia certainly. His protest, setting himself on fire, can't launch revolutions from from Tunisia uh, through Libya, Egypt, and up into Syria. That can't. That one event can't launch that. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened with mm-hmm. the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Now again, tensions, decades of tensions underlying yeah. the surface, and that's the entire point. Right. And so when we look at what's going on, whether not in the Arab world mm-hmm. um, or in Ukraine, mm-hmm. where. Vladimir Putin is mobilizing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I read these words that you know Russia mobilizes against Serbia, these isolated events, a plane being shot down out of the sky, a, civil, yeah. a, a civilian commercial airliner being shot down out of the sky in Ukraine, um, these little events can lead to such larger global events provided there's something under the surface that's been bubbling for quite some time. Yeah, you know, I think I think you're right, and it is a good lesson, and it's always good to look back at history to remember, of course, that these, what seem like isolated events, uh, can, can have a ripple effect and have much greater consequences in a very short period of time. But I think, you know, I, I wonder, as much as there's going on in the world, in Israel and Ukraine, Africa, um, Iraq, as much as going on, I wonder actually if today we can move with that kind of speed from unrest to world war. I just don't know if we can because a couple mitigating factors that, that come to mind for me. And I, you know, I may be the Jeff Goldblum of my movie, but oh, I'm yeah. no historian. Oh, yeah. So uh, this is, uh, of course, my layperson read on this but i wonder one you know world war one it took a week to travel from one city to another a week 
something we can accomplish in an hour now. I think that because the world is smaller, because we can travel faster, because we can communicate more easily, I don't know that an explosive world war could develop that quickly um, today. I think it's a legitimate question to ask, don't we now live in a different world? And I would offer, on top of the technological advancements, um, I think there's there's a question to ask. You know, almost everything in the world has undergone the process of progress, whether it's, uh, you know, phones, healthcare, it's gotten better, mm-hmm. right? If you take a world 100 years ago and you ask, what were they thinking about? What kind of scientific ideas were they debating? They're rudimentary compared to the ones we were debating today. Is diplomacy different? In other words, was the process and ability of diplomacy more uh, remedial more mm-hmm. than it is today? Mm-hmm. So we have the ability to avert these types of uh, spiraling out of control world events today. I'm not suggesting that this can't happen, but there are, there are greater checks in place. I don't I know. I think that's one. I think the, just the logistics and the speed and immediacy make that more difficult. But also the interconnectivity. We are not as isolated. Just look at Russia. Look at, you know, Europe depends on Russia for energy, for gas. Because of that, because we are also interconnected, I mean, a hundred years ago, if something equivalent were happening in Russia, I think there are forces in Europe that would go to war with Russia. However, because there is so much interconnectivity, we are not as isolated, the world is smaller, there is interconnectivity uh, in terms of trade, in terms of resources, in terms of relationships, in terms of business, economies, We are all reliant on each other. We can't be as quick to go to war with other countries. We just can't. I mean, look back on September 11th. September 11th was a mitigating, isolated event. Yes, there was history, but it was a isolated event. We were fairly quick to act. This was not World War III. Mm -hmm. What happened after September 11th was not World War III. I would argue a mitigating event like that, the equivalent of that 100 years ago, would absolutely be enough to start World War III. But we are also interconnected that it's, I think, easier and more um, efficient and beneficial to have isolated conflicts instead of all-out world wars. Is the argument then that the concept of world wars is over? It might, it might be. It's hard to think of an event that would spark a World War III where you have allied nations against allied nations conquering countries, exterminating people. I mean, it's, it's just hard to imagine. In his book, uh, The Next Hundred Years, George Friedman, he's the man who founded Stratfor in Austin, Texas, an intelligence firm. He does predict, and he's very humble in, and about his making predictions that would unfold over the coming century. And this is coming from a man who does an extreme amount of geopolitical intelligence and analysis. He does predict a World War III. Well, over, uh, does he in, talk in the, about In the what? middle of this century. Yeah, and he also tells you who he predicts the allied powers to be. Who? Uh, the United States, Poland, um, against Turkey and Japan. What? Yeah. Why? 
Well, his argument, and and you and I and Buck Sexton were talking about this the other day, is the influence of geography on on world geopolitical uh, uh, politics. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, he, he suggested ultimately Japan is going to need to become somewhat imperialistic because it is an isolated nation. It's going to need resources, and so it begins uh-huh. to exert its power and influence and see and reach out, thus conflicting with the United States. Similar things for Turkey is it. Turkey being the only nation, his estimation, that can consolidate some some power in the Middle East, mm. um, that just competing world interests will eventually lead to rivalries. Interesting. Um, without knowing exactly what, you It's know. an awesome book you should check yeah, out. Yeah, what the next he's talking years. about. Hard to argue against that, but that seems, it doesn't seem obvious, certainly. I mean, I think anyone looking at today's geopolitics, you'd say, okay, Middle East. Well, he addresses many of these. He addresses China. He addresses yeah. Russia. China, China, East, he, right. China, he suggests, is a paper tiger that will mm-hmm. um, will basically begin to dissolve before 2020. And Russia would be, he did predict, a Cold War, the reemergence of a Cold War with Russia in these years, from uh-huh. the, in the teens. But ultimately, Russia doesn't have the economic power internally to sustain any type right. of rivalry. Yeah, it's a, a glorified gas station. Right. Um, well, it's all it's all very interesting. And again, I think worthwhile to look back on history and reflect on the current current right. skirmishes and to wonder and to wonder what would what could spark a world war 3 can today's geopolitical landscape accommodate a world war 3 would we would we allow for it would the competing forces allow for that to happen all right when we come back um you've got a story to tell us about um Anthony Weiner he's back he's back <laughs> Anthony he's back Weiner and serving up hot food is back when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return. Welcome back. I'm S.E. Cup. I'm Will Kane. So what is the appropriate road to redemption for a disgraced public official? You might think, I mean, I would say, look, you, you messed up. Go away. Just go, go live your life. Live a small life. Be good to your family. Be good to your neighbors. And go away, I don't want to see you anymore. Um, that's rarely what happens because so many elected officials, I think, are, are pre- pretty egomaniacal to begin with. Um, and it's certainly not what has happened with our friend Anthony Weiner. Tony Weiner has his latest venture anyway, his latest shot at redemption, actually sounds pretty good. Um, he's opening up a restaurant in Brooklyn uh, on the Rockaway. It's called the Rockaway Restoration Kitchen. It's a restaurant and catering business that will serve healthy food and uh, uh, perform job training in sort of the storm-ravaged area of uh, Queens slash Brooklyn, um, which was devastated by Hurricane Sandy. That sounds really nice. His brother's going to help out. His brother's in the food service industry. He's going to have a, quote, comfortable neighborhood restaurant with healthy lo- Locally sourced food that satisfies the hunger of Rockaway residents, attracts visitors, serves up dignity and self-sufficiency by serving as a hands-on training ground to provide skills, real experience, job placement in the culinary industry. This bravo. Are you serious? 
Yeah, I'm serious. Okay. Here's why not bravo for me. Because I love charity. I love philanthropy. Um, You might think on first blush, good for him. Here's why no. Tony Weiner doesn't do anything that doesn't serve Tony Weiner. That may be. That this may- is all over the news. They sent out press releases. The restaurant's not even open yet. It doesn't even have a website. I looked. There's a homepage, but there's nothing on it. This press release went everywhere with Anthony Weiner's name all over it. Unnecessary. Two, this is not Anthony Weiner's first shot at redemption. Remember last mm-hmm. time he mm-hmm. tried to run for the mayor of New York City? Mm-hmm. There is no self-awareness on the part of Tony Weiner that makes me think, good for him, he's realized what he did wrong, this is now a changed man of the people who wants to give back. I don't buy this for a second. I hope it helps the community. That's great. I think there are ways that he could help the community that don't also serve himself. And I believe 100% he is going to use this to try to propel himself back into public office, celebrity, a a position of power. I don't know about the road to redemption, but I don't think the road to success for Anthony Weiner is in the food service industry. Probably not. I wouldn't need anything he touched. (laughs) I wouldn't be able to get the images out of my head as you went to the restaurant. Exactly. Exactly. Were you guys wearing hairnets? Right? (laughs) No, exactly. It's It's a very strange marriage of Anthony Weiner... Do you think service. Anthony Weiner is aware of all this? You said he's not self-aware, but it's almost at this point as though he is um he's using it as the joke helps to propel him. You see what I'm saying? Like the jokes are baked into the cake on this. Like Weiner's kitchen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to know it. And it's like, let's go with it. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he thinks I can get out of anything. If I tell people to forget about this, they'll forget about this. People love me here. Maybe he has a great sense of humor. Um, I'm not going to this restaurant. I hope it's successful for the community, but... I need... uh, I'm done with Tony. I need parenting advice from you and you listening when we come back on Cane & Cup. You're listening to Cane & Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network. Oh my God, I've gained seven pounds! I've gained eight! I told you! I put on a couple, but seven pounds? How did I gain seven pounds? How did, how did I gain eight? I don't get it! I've, I've, I've been doing the same exercises. I haven't been eating anything different. Me either. Wait a second, wait a second. Maybe it's that yogurt. No, no, no. That's 100% non-fat. Well, how else could this have happened? Well, maybe it's the Oreos. So I don't eat Oreos. You don't eat Oreos? The way you break them open, you're... <laughs> Practically having sex with them. What about me? You, you're getting old. <laughs> maybe your yogurt isn't so non-fat. Oh, guess again, Tubby. <laughs> <laughs> never, never comfortable to point out um, that someone has, has put on a few pounds. Can I tell you, um, it, th- there's a lot of weirdnesses being pregnant that you, you know, realize and have to confront for the first time. 
Um, one of them is how comfortable people feel discussing your body. It is bizarre to me how comfortable people feel commenting, sharing their comments unsolicited about the way you look now that you're pregnant. Um, I was having breakfast with a friend yesterday who is pregnanter than I am. She's uh, due in September, and so she's bigger. I'm not due until December. Uh, expecting her third, a girl. She looks great. she just come from the gym. And she, um, she says to me, you'll never guess what just happened. I'm at the gym, and this trainer there says, you're so big. Are you having twins? <laughs> and she, she's like appalled. She's mortified, right? And says, no, but thanks for making me feel great this morning. And I... I had a similar experience, not quite not quite as offensive, I think, where I went into a baby store and the gentleman who worked there said, hey, you know, how are you? Um, how far along are you? And I said, I think at the time it was five months. I said five months. He goes, oh, I was going to guess six. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> okay, keep that analysis to yourself. Um. I just can't imagine another scenario in which you would feel comfortable commenting on the way a total stranger's body looks to you. And, like, offering analysis. So like, here's my opinion. It looks like you're having twins. Here's what I think. I, I understand this is a very emotional time for you. I'm not emotional I understand about you have it. a it's lot of bizarre. swings. Um, oh, please. This is getting you into trouble. Maybe some insecure times. I, I've been through this. <laughs> so I I, uh, I acknowledge where this is coming from, but I think you might be being, being You don't think this friend, is bizarre? I think you're being a little sensitive. You don't think this is bizarre? I'm going to- I'm What going if someone to, came up to you I'm and going said- to ex- Look, I don't- What if a stranger <laughs> came up to you and said at a store- you see your face right now. Look at, look at how- your, your, your beard's so gray. How old are you? I would guess 45. You don't think that would be bizarre? You don't. That 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 was a passive aggressive move because the beard does have gray, and you just said that I look forty five. I'm saying, what if someone offered you that unsolicited analysis? Okay, I'm going to tell you why of it's your aging. I'm going to tell you why it's different. Now, first of all, I don't indulge it's in not the different. pregnancy commentary. I generally avert my eyes and pretend like it's not there. <laughs> that is smart because it's a very uncomfortable thing to admit. And to get wrong. I see what you've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but also if you're wrong. I don't want to even acknowledge it. Um, but here's what's going on. First of all, they think it's acceptable for two reasons. One, it's temporary. The gray in my beard is not. <laughs> it could be. Your size is temporary. That's why they feel comfortable commenting on it. Second, no. when they say you look six months, not five months, and wow, you're so big, he's not talking about your arms or your thighs or any of the things that women are sometimes insecure about. He's talking about the size of your belly, like the growth of the child inside of you. You know, unless you're a doctor, I'm really not interested in your opinion of the size of my belly. It's totally inappropriate. But I'm telling you why in that man's mind, he is saying something I would not do, just to reiterate, why he is doing that, why he thinks it's okay to do that. Because A, it's temporary, and B, I'm commenting on the size of your belly. I also think people think it's okay because there is this perception that, like, this baby is the community's. Maybe. Right? It, it's society's baby. Wrong. It's mine. He's taking joy in your moment. 
Hey, all right. I'm not saying there's malevolence behind any of this. And by the way, the person who said this to my friend was a woman. The trainer was a woman. Oh. Um, if that makes a difference. But I, I'm not I'm not saying there's any malevolence there. I'm sure it's all in good with good intentions. But it's so stupid and inappropriate. It's totally inappropriate. I don't know when this became acceptable to comment and offer analysis. Here's why you don't do of it. Of your growing belly. Here's why you don't do it. Because you alluded to it earlier. And I know people who have done it. How far along are you? I'm not pregnant. I do this now to freak people out. They ask me how far along and I go, what do you mean? <laughs> Just to watch that moment of panic on panic. their face. I was, I was, um, it's funny. I was uh, guest hosting The View the other week. And there was a woman in the audience who I thought looked pregnant. And because I am pregnant, I wanted to you say, did this? you know, you've hosted The View in the breaks. Sometimes talk you to talk the to the audience. Right. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to talk to this woman about being pregnant. And a, a, a Martian came into my head and said, don't do this. <laughs> so I asked Sherry Shepard, who was sitting next to me, do you think that woman's pregnant? And she goes, I don't know. She could just be fat. <laughs> and so Sherry goes, let me handle this. And she asks the audience, Essie's pregnant. Who here is pregnant? And luckily this woman raises her hand. And so we got to talk about it. Okay. So it worked out. It worked out. But my, my parting advice is, please don't comment on the size of my belly. It's not yours. This is not the community's baby. It's mine. And unless you're a doctor, your opinion is irrelevant. It is totally irrelevant. All right, I've told you that I want to get some parenting advice. In fact, I want to open it up to you as well. I really am interested in your feedback on this. I think our number, I haven't been here for a couple weeks. So. <laughs> Jose, what's our number? It starts with 888. 888-900-3393. Tell me if I did the right thing here. Now listen, I have two boys. One is six and one is three. They are very different in personality. The oldest is a people pleaser. He is sensitive. He's nice. The second does not care <laughs> what you think, what you want. Is he He's kind a, of a jerk? Where, Sounds like a jerk. <laughs> but an endearing one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, when I was on vacation, they were sitting at my feet uh, playing Legos, and this unfolded right in front of me. I watched it go down. Uh -huh. My oldest, the six-year-old, makes some kind of Lego toy. Um, which apparently, in the minds of a six or three-year-old, was cool, uh -huh. right? <laughs> he was pleased. It's honestly nothing special to me. <laughs> the three-year-old observes this Lego and says, I want that. Now, he's just mastering English. He's just now putting sentences <laughs> English. together. English, okay. I want <laughs> that. Let me see that. Hand that to me. Let me have that. Give that to me. I want that. Let me see that. The six-year-old ignores him. Uh -huh. He doesn't even acknowledge the requests being rattled off to hand over the Lego. So the three-year-old, by the way, I'm going to tell you, his name is West, which just completely fits. Like, he will be riding a bull one day. <laughs> okay. Coming out of shoot number seven, West Kane. Nice. Um, he says, and it takes him five tries to get the grammar right on this. Uh -huh. So he reiterates it like five times to the six-year-old. Okay. By the way, here's a picture of him. I'm just going to show you. My wife just texted me this picture. Oh, my gosh. He's standing on the streets of New York City with a Hulk hand on one fist and a, and a looks knife like a saber. in the other. <laughs> he says to my six-year-old, okay, give me the Lego, <laughs> and I don't punch you in the face. <laughs> don't give me the Lego. I punch you in the face. No. 
And I'm telling you, it took him five times to get the positive and negative right, right? Like, if you don't, then I do. If it's I, complicated. Do, it's a little complicated, like, to have the two alternatives laid yes. out with the exact positive and negative. So it takes him, for him five tries. And then he lays out his mafia-style threat yes. to my six-year-old. Yeah. Give me the Lego. I don't punch you in the face. Because this is teachers. Everything is good. Uh-huh, Here. right. Uh, so good. Don't give me the Lego. I punch you in the face. And I sit here and listen. I'm like, where did this come from? First of all, the specificity took me back. Like... <laughs> Not I'm going to hurt you, get you. Right. I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah. So I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And so immediately I'm like, hey. And the face, you know, instantly changes. Looks up to me, doe-eyed, like lick starts trembling. I said, what did you just say? Uh-huh. We don't threaten our brother that way. And he starts, to, then the crying is starting to come. And I'm like, don't you cry. Don't you cry. <laughs> and I said, now I'm going to give you a choice. Oh. I freelanced this. 100% off the top of my head. Okay. And this is what I'm asking you. 888-900-3393 and you. Did I make the right call? Okay. I said, option number one, West, you go to timeout. Maybe spank your bottom. I understand for some that's controversial. I don't believe it is. But the point is, discipline is coming. Okay. You're definitely going to timeout. Okay. I don't want to go to timeout. <laughs> All right. Option number two, you get to hit Charlie in the face. You get to hit your brother in the face. Oh. Of course, things are looking up for him. Right, <laughs> said, right. But afterwards... He gets to punch you as hard as he wants, anywhere he wants. Wow. And he immediately goes, I don't want to. <laughs> and I'm like, that's it. And he doesn't yeah. want to make a choice. Obviously, there's no good option here. Right. And I'm like, you've got to make a choice now. Here we go. One, two. And he goes, I punched Charlie in the face. <gasps> he chose. He chose to punch him. Now, of and course. Take the punch. By the way, yeah. my six-year-old's like, what? <laughs> I, I, what do I get out of this deal? <laughs> what? So... He rears up and does a little weak three-year-old punch on my son's oh my gosh. neck, chin area. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And he then braces himself. He sticks his arms straight down by his side like this with fists. Like, did he did he cover his front like a soccer no, player? No, no. He exposes his chest. <laughs> he closes his eyes and he starts crying. Okay, Charlie. <laughs> I'm looking at this little girl. He's like, he's just prepared to take it. He's not running away. He's not shielding himself. Were you a little proud? All, a little bit. <laughs> like, all he's doing is bracing himself for it. And my six-year-old reaches back and tags him in the superplex, knocks oh, him over. Oh, my God. Didn't really hurt him, but more hurt his feelings. Mm-hmm. And he cried and uh-huh. didn't like it. Yep. And later I heard my six-year-old put his arm around him and go, I didn't really hit you as hard as I could. Because, oh. <laughs> of course, he's the sweet he's one. He's nice, Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Was wow. that right or wrong? But I think I was telling myself, you need to teach the concept of repercussions. If you go around in the world and you think this is how you're going to operate, mm-hmm. you're going to make a threat or you're even going to resort to physical violence, prepare yeah. for retaliation. There should be a consequence and the consequence will come not from a parent overseeing you That's sometimes. Right. It'll come from the other party. Here's why I like what you did. Because the threat of a timeout, first of all, is very child specific. Yeah. As you said- there's not going to be a parent. And and the adult equivalent of timeout, which is like jail time, right? I mean, justice doesn't always find you. So the threat needs to come in like a real world way. And your other threat, like hit him. He's going to hit you back. That's the real world. That's, that's I think and that's what need, I was thinking. Yes. I'm, I'm a little surprised you went through with it because sometimes like the threat could be enough to teach the lesson. And then you come in and say, okay, I'm not actually going to let you guys hit each other, but just remember this. <laughs> you you went through with it, which is amazing. Um, and I think it probably taught the sufficient lesson. I, I I bet West does not threaten to hit his brother again. I don't know. He's a tough cookie. Maybe he liked it. 
Um, but I think giving the real world scenario of what happens, what the consequences are, is way more important than giving like the parental consequences of of timeout. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think this was all going on. I didn't like sit there and have time to like rationalize it out. Yeah, but it I think that instinct. was going on. Yeah. And I hope it worked. Um, <laughs> my wife just texted me, please don't make this boy look too bad with a picture of West. I, 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 you're right. A, no. li- a little bit of me likes it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's really endearing. First of all, here's what I like about West. Um, very smart, it sounds like, to sort of lay out the options his to threat, Charlie. His threat. <laughs> yes. Here, here's what I want. Here's my list of demands. If you meet it, we're cool. If you don't, here's what will happen. <laughs> I think that's really smart. And look, you're not raising a bully. He let him know. Here's what's about to happen. <laughs> right? You can choose, Charlie. You can choose. I want you to make the right choice. Give me the Lego. Let me help you help yourself. Just give me the Lego. This will all work out. I mean, it's a really good insight into West's thinking. Right. And I also like, he took the punch. I liked that. I took really the punch. liked I took it. Look, he said, I don't want to do timeout. Who does? <laughs> right. <laughs> Who does? I'll take the it's punch. It's really boring. And on the bright side, I get to deliver one. <laughs> exactly. Right. He weighed the options of, okay, the punch might hurt, but I get to give one first. I I, I, I bet I can deliver a decent right. enough one. Poor Charlie got the real shaft on this and deal. I mean, your poor older son, who did nothing wrong. Right. Who did nothing wrong. Got punched. Got a lick out of the deal. And then had the good common decency to go easy on his little brother. No, I'd be proud all around. Well, tweet me at Will Kane. I am genuinely curious if you think (laughs) I've made a right or wrong call. Um, Amazing. All right. You have some predictions for the future we need to go over. And we also have questions about with all this legalization of marijuana going on, man, it raises some interesting questions about can companies now drug test people for what is a legal product? Can you you administer drug tests? We're actually going to ask a lawyer how that will all go down. That's all coming up when we come back on Kane and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm Messy Cup. I'm Will Kane. Um, did you see this last night? Uh, or like yesterday afternoon? The death of James Brady, the former aide to President Reagan, who was shot by James Hinckley. John. John Hinckley, sorry. Uh, who was trying to assassinate Reagan 33 years ago, is being ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. Okay. See this. Now, when I first saw this story, I thought, oh, my gosh, someone killed James Brady. I thought the same thing when I saw the headline. Of course. Like, wow, um, he's he's old and, and not in great health. Maybe it was someone taking care of him. That's and- exactly what I thought, a caretaker. Exactly. Yeah. Like, this is going to be negligent homicide. Something went went wrong here. And then it was pointed out to me by my husband. Um, No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying that James Brady was murdered 33 years ago. It just took this long for it to happen. That's exactly what it they're saying. It just took this long for, for him to die. Right. Um, of course, this set off Twitter apoplectic. I mean, confusion, chaos, outrage. What? Um, 
that 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 could actually work that that's allowed you can rule a death a homicide even if it takes 33 years to happen um and so people on twitter started asking sort of legal questions because even though this was just a medical ruling by an by an me and i, I don't expect any charges to be filed against hinkley um people wonder like would this hold up in court like if hinkley uh, heard this and sued because A, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity and B, uh, you know, maybe he thinks it's defamation or something. Would a jury hold this ruling up? Would a jury buy that this was a homicide? So to me, that's the question. Yeah. I, I texted a friend of mine who's a criminal defense turn, attorney in Dallas a little earlier and the the inclination is always to say, well, there is no statute of limitations on murder. So, even though it's been 33 years, yeah. he could be charged with murder legally. But that's not the question we're really asking. We're talking about how extenuated can the contrib- contributing incident be to the potential death? So right. um, did James Hinckley's bullet contribute to Brady's— John Hinckley. John Hinckley, James Brady. I'm sorry. John Hinckley's bullet eventually contribute to James Brady's death. The right. answer is yes. I mean, I'm sure, sure it, it diminished his quality of life, mm-hmm. uh, subtracted years from his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but how much is enough? Well, and I don't know and how... And that's a question for a jury. I don't know how James Brady actually died. Like, did he die of dementia? Did he die of... We don't know. Right. Um, did he die of something that he could have died from had he not been shot? Right? Like, dementia. Right. Or uh, cancer, which I don't, I don't think is the case. But something that could happen to anyone. Well, clearly, this is a medical examiner's, um... Uh, ruling that it's a homicide, right? Saying right? that that his death so, was inextricably inextricably linked right. to the bullet, the bullet wound, and the brain damage that it caused. I mean, it caused significant damage. Well, we have some questions about what these uh, legalization of marijuana means for drug testing. Let's ask the lawyer this as well. We have a lawyer coming up after the break. Oh we'll, yeah, let's. Well, we we'll have ask him. him about the legal consequences of this as well when Perfect. we come back on Canaan Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Messy cup. That guy over there is Will Kane and, and busy on his iPad. Um, I think you probably all remember the New York Times came out with a very splashy editorial uh, backing the legalization of marijuana. It's a big deal because, um, you know, it's it's not a position that a newspaper is required to take. And to sort of Take the position not only that um, from a state's rights point of view, this is what should happen, but from a cultural point of view was kind of a big deal. And they did it very publicly. It was a big, big um, announcement. They sent it around. It was covered by a lot of um, media outlets. And it's starting to raise questions about the New York Times' own 
um, policies at the company. And some people are asking whether there's some irony now or hypocrisy in the New York Times' editorial position considering the fact that they drug test journalists for marijuana prior to allowing them to byline articles. Um, Now, that's not unique to the New York Times. I think a lot of employers drug test prior to hiring. In some cases, employers drug test even after hiring. And it raises the question uh, that I think is going to create a lot of questions within sort of the labor law um, arena. What can employers do legally about employees who may be using a legal substance in the cases of states like Colorado and Washington, which are legalizing marijuana? So it's not something that state that 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 uh, employers have not confronted before. Um, employers try to deal with this murky issue, uh, skirting privacy issues, skirting, um, in some cases, free speech issues, and and trying to figure out what is the line between your personal life and your private life. And it's tricky. I think it's only going to get trickier in the case of legal marijuana. Right. And we've already seen some some backlash. You remember the the guy in Washington State who was like first in line to buy marijuana. He was on a news report and his employer fired him for seeing him. I don't know if that holds up. I don't know if that's legal. Right. But to get to that question, um, I wanted to bring on a legal expert to uh, help us sort of figure out where we go from here. Because I bet there are questions we can't even predict. And I'm imagining a new cottage industry cropping up, so to speak, <laughs> over these new issues. So so welcome Alex Little. He is a criminal defense and litigation attorney, a former prosecutor, and a former assistant U.S. attorney. Alex, I can imagine um, scores of labor issues resulting from the legalization of marijuana. Let's start with your interpretation of the scenario I just presented. Um, can an employer, do you think, fire an, an employee for using a legal substance like marijuana? It really depends where you live. And this is, a, this is an issue that's being litigated actually very actively in Colorado right now. They had a case which started back a few years ago when they had the medical marijuana law. There was an individual who was a paraplegic and used marijuana um, when he was not at work to help with symptoms related to his paralysis. And he was a customer service rep at um, Dish Network. Dish Network drug tested him randomly, found out that he had used marijuana, and fired him. And that case is now at the Colorado Supreme Court. It's going to be decided here in September. I bet it is, yeah. Yeah, but what's different about Colorado is there's a statute in Colorado that says that protects you from from being fired if you've done anything lawful. You can't be fired for a lawful act. The question in Colorado is whether it's lawful uh, for all purposes to use medical marijuana. Most states don't have that law. And so in most states, you can test folks for marijuana. And as an employer, say, you know what, we don't want we don't want you working for Yeah, I mean, let's, yeah, for the purposes of this conversation, it's a good point. Let's let's just focus on the states where it's legal um, now, because I think that's, that's sort of the experiment we're looking at. But what I don't sure. understand about marijuana is uh, uh, the problem that it pr- presents is that drug testing really doesn't tell you all you need to know because marijuana, as everyone knows, stays in your system a lot longer than the effects of marijuana 
uh, do. So so you could have marijuana in your system and not be high or impaired. Not affecting your job. Not affecting your job or your judgment. So how does an employer use a drug test to determine the next course of action? Well, but I think they probably, I mean, it it would have to do a lot with what your behavior is. You'd have to back up. If you're going to fire somebody for being high on the job, you've got to have some proof that they were high on the job. But that's Um, the point, right? Wait, I'm sorry, Alex, but that's the point, right? We're talking about a situation not where someone is fired for being high on the job, but for having marijuana, a legal product in this situation, in their system. Because it remains, right? As opposed to alcohol, uh, it, it remains in your system. So the question is not actually what you're doing at your job, but when you're not at your job. Yeah, imagine I'm an employee and I say, okay, well, you think my behavior was high, uh, I was just in a really bad mood that day. And I don't care that you have a positive drug test. I had smoked 30 days ago. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I mean, maybe the best example is smoking. Employers in many states can fire you for being a smoker. They can say, we want a smoke-free workplace. and We don't care if you don't do it at work. We just don't want smokers here. And so some states, to counteract that, have passed laws that specifically protect smokers. Hmm. Well, there aren't any laws that specifically protect pot smokers at yeah. this point, except for maybe a law in California and maybe a law in Colorado that says that you can be protected for everything legal. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, employers have a great deal of discretion over who they want to hire and who they want to fire. Yeah. Right. And you've seen a lot of insurance agencies say, you know, we want to set an example because, you know, nicotine and smoking is such a drag on our business. Yeah. We want I, I remember a lot of hospitals, free. yeah, a lot of hospitals who tried to be smoke-free, wanted to drug test prospective employees, yeah. uh, nurses and administrators. But let me— So that's, by the way, I just want to clarify. So that's the best example, I, I think. It's it's the nicotine parallel. It's a legal product. A employer yeah. has a right to determine the standards under which he employs somebody. It's not an aggrieved class, smokers. It's not right. a discriminated right. against class, uh, at least legally. Um, but let me—Alex, let me ask you this— um, you, you're you're suggesting that in Colorado there's a statute whereby you cannot be fired for lawful behavior. Is that that's, that's what you said, and, right? And, and, and that's absolutely right. So, okay. So a private business then has no sort of, uh, if you want to call it like a morality clause, or no discretion then over to say as a private enterprise, as a private business, this might be lawful behavior outside the parameters of this office building, but when you're in here... You can't do that. Uh, well, right. So, absolutely. I mean, they, the employer can certainly govern what you do within the workplace, um, but they can't fire you in Colorado if you do think something which is legal, um, which is not done during work hours and doesn't have an effect on your job. There are certainly. Mm. Um, do a lot of states have those laws, like wow. Colorado, that you can't fire no, somebody only, for? I believe there's only four. Um, Colorado. Um, California has a similar one, North New York and North Carolina. Hmm. That's fascinating. Hey, let me ask you uh, another question, Alex. We just had this debate before you came on, um, and I, I know you are a former prosecutor. Um, I think you did criminal defense as well, uh, SEC. Uh, yeah, I am doing that now, yes. Um, do you, can, you, can you give us any insight on, on this uh, story where um, John Hinckley, well, James Brady, uh, yeah, who was shot by sure, John Hinckley sure. 33 years ago, his death's been ruled a homicide. Does that have any legal um, effect on potentially could it on John Hinckley? Sure, it does. And, and you know that's uh, that's the office I used to be. I was a prosecutor in that office in Washington D.C. It's the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia that will consider that case. Hmm. Um, and they certainly do have a potential ability to prosecute Hinckley for murder. 
I think it would be a what? horrible wait, idea. Wait, wait, explain this to me. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Is there no double jeopardy? And is there a statute of limitations on attempted murder? So he, he would not he would not be double jeopardy because he was not charged at that time with murdering um, Brady. Um, Brady, yeah. Secretary. He, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't charged with murdering Brady. Uh, it would be double jeopardy, of course, if he was charged with murdering uh, Reagan. Um, but it, there is no statute of limitations on murder in Washington, D.C. But what about attempted murder? Well, it would have to be murder. Um, and, and the allegation would be... Oh, because he died. The bullet right. that killed him eventually led to his death. Is there so, any limiting factor on wow. that? I, and I don't mean this as a statute of limitations question, but yeah. however, as a contributing factor, right? Because if yeah, you start going down this yeah. road, you could have minuscule, minuscule contributing factors become homicide. No, and, and I just I just won a murder trial two weeks ago on that exact issue. Oh, <laughs> really? You know, we have multiple ways that somebody dies. Uh, imagine a drug overdose, somebody overdosed with six drugs. Yeah. One person gave him one drug. And here you have the same sort of question, right? I mean, Brady was not a young individual. There were lots of things with respect yeah. to death. Um, and so that's going to be the consideration that the prosecutors are going to look at. Do you think it holds up? Argue. I, I can't imagine that it would, given his age. Um, you know, this, we had a similar is that, I'm sorry, is that ultimately a jury question? So like in your it case? Is. It would be. Wow. Yeah. It, it would Fascinating. Be a and, and you, you see it often where somebody gets the more common cases where the injury is much more serious. Yeah. Somebody's in a coma for two years and clear, yeah, paralyzed for yeah. four years. Yeah, uh, you know, two, three, four, ten years. I mean, they're they're you can make arguments. Wow. Thankfully, it's twenty five, thirty three, um, thirty three, and so more than twenty five <laughs> years. It, it just it would be, I think, it's very wow. difficult and not worth the prosecutorial resources necessary to do it. Wow. Uh, well, Alex, thanks so much. You've been incredibly helpful on a number of fronts. We'll have to have you back to answer all of our legal <laughs> yeah, questions. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> all right. Thanks, <laughs> Alex. Well, that was uh, I, that really satisfied some yeah. of my curiosity. Both of those questions. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to have Alex back because uh, you know these stories, both on marijuana. I mean, that's not going away. Um. That you know that I think that's just going to come up over and over and over again, and um, on the Hinkley thing, I think people are going to be asking questions about this for a while too. Right, should be interesting. All right, you want to um, you want to go to a break and come back? Yeah. All right, we'll go to a break, and when I come back, I have some. I have something to tell you about the future. Is what is what's about to happen? Oh wow! I'm going to tell you, Nostradamus, about the well, Jeff Goldblum. Told you. Right. Told you. I am the Jeff Goldblum in my own movie. All right, stay tuned. More Kane and Cup when we come back. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You've seen that movie, right, Will? Back to the Future? Yeah. Two. Back to the Future 2. Yes. Yeah. All about the future. I mean, all of these movies that are, are shown in the future, of course, make everyone wonder, okay, when are these technologies actually becoming available? 
We've all been thinking about flying cars. Right. Since the Jetsons. I've seen Minority Report, by the way. Yes. That one's kind of here, right? When he's swiping his fingers on the wall. Totes. Yeah, totally here. Yeah. Totally here. Um, and frightening. Well, there's a couple of technologies. Don't say totes to me in the future. Okay? Totes. In in the future, like in next in the next minute or like in the future? Both. <laughs> um, there's a couple of technologies that were made popular uh, by futuristic movies that are here or on their way. Oh. Did I preempt one with my Minority Report? No. Okay. No. I, 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 that's just not on this list. Um, I found a list in The Guardian by a tech writer who uh, compiled some of the most popular, famous, well-known future technologies, figured out which ones are on their way. One, hoverboard. Is it really here? I've seen those YouTube videos where they suggest that it's not real. Yeah, the prototypes they have are not great. And there's one that's here, but it works with a track. So, yes, you're on a hoverboard. It's like a magnetic track. And then, yeah, yeah, but right. there's a track underneath it, yep. which means you can't, you know, go off course. Right. But uh, he suggests that the prototypes they are developing, and there is there is an aquatic version, mm-hmm, uh, could, could lead to what we consider to be a hoverboard, which is hmm. pretty cool. Hmm. Pretty cool. Um, another thing on its way, do you remember Men in Black, the Neuralizer? Is that the thing that makes people forget? Yes. Like you you were not here? Yes. Forget your memories. Um, that's frightening. He says that electroconvulsive therapy has made huge strides and can now be used to target and erase memories of a traumatic episode. This is basically like from um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or whatever. This is shocking your head, but they're getting more precise in it. Let me quote him. This is terif- terrifyingly made such huge strides since One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, they're they're perfecting it, and they're using a method of um, light, essentially, to form, erase, and then restore memories in rats. Hmm. That's craziness. Wow. That's crazy town. Another thing that is maybe on their way, lightsabers. Like from Star Wars. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, what would we do? Like, like it, have a lightsaber fight? Well, and, and it would, like, hurt. Like, bzzz. Right, so scientists at MIT um, are developing sort of this light source, manipulating photons technology to deflect each other. So it's essentially creating a new form of matter from light. And so the light will be hard, not, you know, the light that we know that is sort of um, science. Soft. (laughs) Science. (laughs) Science. (laughs) Um, This this technology is very far away, but scientists conceive that this could be used to form 3D structures made of light. So theoretically, a lightsaber would be possible. I don't know what you would do with it except make that sound with another lightsaber. (laughs) But um, it, it could be on its way. Lightsaber loses to an 1850 gun. Probably. Probably <laughs> still probably still beatable light. <laughs> All right. It's been fun getting back in the saddle with you this morning. We'll be back next week. Both of us, Will Kane and Nancy Cup. Thanks for hanging out for the last three hours. We'll see you again. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.